Welcome to this Verb Readers and Writers Festival event. Tonight we are here to celebrate the publication of A Clear Dawn, New Asian Writers from Aotearoa, New Zealand. <laughs> Edited by Paula Morris and Alison Wong and published by Auckland University Press. This is the first ever anthology of Asian New Zealand creative writing, bringing together writers with roots stretching from Indonesia to Japan, from China to the Philippines to the Indian subcontinent. It's a dynamic, electrifying collection, a book, as Helene Wong described in her review, a book for dipping, not skimming. Tonight, I am joined by three of those writers whose work is included in the anthology. Rupa Moitra was born in Dunedin. She completed a degree in violin performance, then studied medicine. She continued to play violin in orchestras when she moved to Wellington and specialised in pathology, taking a break to have children. In 2014, Rupa completed a master's in creative writing at Victoria University, and a collection of short stories, Prophecies, was published in 2019. Mikey Santo Domingo <laughs> has a fan club over there. Is an office worker and occasional writer based in Tafanganui Atara. Mikey's fiction has been published in Turbine and Mimicry, and she was a runner-up in this year's Sargeson Prize for short fiction. Rose Liu gained her master's in creative writing at the International Institute of Modern Letters in 2018 and was awarded the Modern Letters Prize for Creative Nonfiction. Her essay collection, All Who Live on Islands, was published to critical acclaim in 2019. Her undergraduate degree was in mechatronics engineering, and she has worked as a software developer since 2012. And my name is Chris Teese. Um, so tonight we've got a mix of uh, conversation about uh, these wonderful writers and their lives and their work. Um, and we're going to pepper the evening with uh, readings from A Clear Dawn. But what we've decided to do is actually read from other people's work um, so that we can bring their voices onto the stage tonight and share them all with you. So a lot of the reviews and a lot of the articles about this collection have talked about how representation matters. And I, I thought the first question that we could ask um, the panel here tonight is, what does the phrase representation matters mean to you? And I might start with Rupa on my left. Our phones now have um, emojis that have different coloured skin. And, um, and for some reason that really matters to me. When I was growing up, everything is um, represented as white-skinned, white-skinned dolls, white-skinned um, advertisements. And you just kind of get used to that being normal. But then I guess you, you realise that actually, why, why aren't there um, dolls and advertisements and actors and uh, representations in, amongst actors in New Zealand? And Mikey? I don't really care about uh, seeing people that look like me uh, because it just just because someone looks like me, it doesn't mean they're going to be anything like me. Like there's like a Filipino character in Shortland Street now, and she's just like she's not she's not very funny. Uh, <laughs> she's like a little bit homophobic in like the one scene that I've seen her in. Um, but you know, I get like some people that's like really important for them to see themselves represented, but. For me, I don't really care about like the cosmetics of things. If I can create content, if I can create art, if people like me can be behind that sort of thing, then I'm happy. And Rose? Um, something that I've been talking to my friend Vera about a lot is um, I think it's very reductive to think of representation as lifting Asian people to be this, in the same places where we see white people. And I think that's like a really like mainstream, like 
what is, what's that movie? Crazy Rich Asians or whatever type representation. But I think a lot of people who grow up as like a racial minority feel a lot of shame about their culture. Um, and it's, it's not really about optics. I'm like, if I want to see Asian people on screen, there's literally like several countries of Chinese cinema. Um, but it's more about, I think, individuals feeling comfortable within themselves to be able to access other parts of their culture. And that is what I think when representation matters. It's not necessarily like, why aren't I being treated like a white person in this scenario, but rather like feeling comfortable as who you are and navigating those sort of like multiple identities that you might hold. Yeah, because growing up, I did get to watch a lot of Hong Kong TV series and uh, films that my dad watched. Um, but for me, it wasn't uh, being able to see myself in, I guess, New Zealand media. Um, so what do you think about that sort of balance of uh, stories from, like, you know, going to the source, I guess, or, you know, what represents, you know, your particular experience? I guess this was something that was really stressing me out in my when I was writing the book because I was just like, oh, my God, there's so few writing by Chinese New Zealanders and I don't want this to be the canon because it shouldn't be. And, like, you know, I could be the one unfunny homophobic writer in New Zealand and people are going to be like, oh, no. She's not. I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> we should just make that clear. <laughs> that was a joke. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to when there's such a paucity of things to then have these like few points that you can cling on to and I've had you know people write to me in the reception of my book being like your life is nothing like mine but I'm glad that that's out there and that's yeah important as well and I think there there does need to be and that's something that I really enjoy about A Clear Dawn is that there's so much in here and I think um, people really come from all sorts of different places and all have different journeys to their identity um, and I think this is a really like good example of representation because um, it takes people from where they are and it's not trying to people aren't trying to be something else they're just who they are what they want to be and I think there's just so much reflected in that. Mikey you did mention the Filipino nurse in Shortland Street whose name is Madonna <laughs> unsurprisingly that's the only thing I know about her um, when was the first time that you actually did see um, someone on screen or in a book that sort of did speak to you and, and your experience and your identity? I haven't seen anyone that looks like me and is much like me. I mean, if, have you ever read uh, Tessa Moshfeg? So she writes about these very wretched women who just like, you know, roll around in their own filth and like think these horrible thoughts about everyone. And when I read her, I'm like, yes, this is me. But it helps because you can't see what they look like, you know? And that's the beautiful thing about literature as a form is, you know, you can kind of picture anything unless they give you the specifics of what someone looks like. But even then, not every writer is racializing appearance um, unless that's like, you know, their whole modus operandi. So for you, it's not necessarily about race or ethnicity. It's more about a, a vibe, a feeling, a character. And Rupa, what about you? I don't really remember seeing... Um people of Indian ethnicity on screen when I was growing up or, in, or reading about them in books. But I know that the sort of characters I really related to a lot, there was, for example, David Copperfield. I felt that could be me or it could be anyone. I mean, it, it was, there's so much humanity in that story. And um, I think that was where I've, I felt the truest kind of connection. 
And in your biographical note for your entry in, in the Clare Dawn, you talk about how growing up in Dunedin, you never really sort of saw yourself as different and that you were just one of the other Kiwi kids. It wasn't until you moved to Wellington that you started to notice that you were different. Can you talk about what, what was that switch and what, what was it that made you feel different? Um, probably Newtown. Um, just arriving in Newtown to start my job and realising that actually everybody else, um, I, I look like everybody else. <laughs> and um, there's a few uh, pale-skinned people around and um, that didn't mean that I felt like I necessarily belonged because I think I, I, it was a, I do remember in those early days in Wellington hearing sort of racial slurs yelled at me from open doors and cars and people walking around, even in Newtown. So, um, yeah, that was the first time I experienced it. And this is a question for all three of you, but, you know, when was that moment that you actually felt different, that you were the other? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I feel like... I experienced like a fair amount of racism in primary school, but everyone's like a dumbass back then. <laughs> and also like I think growing up in the 90s is like a really different time. Like there's that song that's like, Chinese food makes me sick. And I like reheard it recently and I was like, oh my God, this was like a banger. And it has this like super racist line and I just never realised until I was in adulthood. So I just, I'm hopeful that the kids of, the, of today are better. But, and I think that really like active in your face, like what you would canonically label racism. I experience a lot of that as like a child, but as I've gotten older, it's definitely changed, right? It's more like in, in lines of like, oh, like you made a strange assumption about me in this situation or like, you know, like things that you would call like microaggressions or stuff like that. Like I think what that is becomes different as people get older and the understanding of things are more nuanced, but there are still you know, things that everyone is still unpacking for themselves. I've never really experienced much racism directly, uh, and I don't know why. Um, Sometimes I wonder if maybe I'm ethnically ambiguous, but I don't know. Like, am I white passing right now? I do know, though, that, you know, my brother and sister did face more racism than I, and I don't know if that had something to do with their particular personalities, their being more social, and, you know, my being kind of just, like, weird personally rather than racially like that. So I... I, I mean, this is such a like interesting thing because it's like it never occurred to me that I didn't belong because I was just such a like weird little freak. <laughs> <laughs> did, did any of you feel ashamed of your culture or your identity growing up? Um, yes, I certainly did. Um, strangely, although I didn't experience racism or really feel really different, I was. I was aware that my parents were very different, um, and I guess everyone's, everybody is ashamed of their parents. <laughs> so maybe it was mostly that, but um, I suppose I did wish that my parents were more like everybody else's parents. Because And your parents encouraged you to, to speak English even at home. Yeah, they did. They really wanted us to be like all the other kids, so they kept on speaking Bengali to us so we, can, we could understand it, but... Um, we didn't speak it. Uh, Mikey, Rose? Um, sometimes I feel ashamed about many other things about my papa, but not the ancestry, not the cultural elements. 
I think I was resentful of having to go to Mandarin class because it took up all of my Saturdays. Um, but I don't know if that was, yeah, specific to like feeling shame. It was more like, oh, I've gone to school for five days and now I have to do this again. Like, yeah. And at, at the time, like, I mean, I was living in Auckland, so like, um, in the suburb of Mount Roscoe, which is like one of the most diverse in New Zealand, and everyone I knew was either um, like mostly Chinese or Indian, so it wasn't like it was abnormal, um, and most people did have two languages at home, and yet I was just still, I don't want to do this on a Saturday. <laughs> yeah. I remember actually feeling really, um, like this sounds bad, but like, I remember like going to my white friends' houses and being like, what is this food? <laughs> I was legit so disappointed when I found out what lasagna was. I was like, are you serious? This is it? Like, <laughs> What is this onion dip concoction? <laughs> Rose, you talk about, you know, growing up in Maori school and being a diverse community. Um, did any of you sort of experience or, or notice um, creators in, in, in those communities that, you know, this was something slightly different from the doctors and the lawyers and the accountants that we were told that we should be. I have this really strong memory. Um, when I was in my last year of high school um, and at the time, um, Blink from Loham was touring bands all around the country um, and a band that stopped and played in Wanganui was so, so modern and I was the first time I saw an Asian person who was not a doctor or a lawyer or whatever and I just remember being like, oh my God, you are my Asian idol. <laughs> like, it was like absolutely like fanboying about it. And I still got this photo that um, Mike Leong signed being like, hi from your Asian idol. <laughs> um, and I have never talked to him about this. <laughs> yeah. Because Rupi, you, you went and studied music at, at university. Um, how, how did your parents react to that? The, the only reason that they were okay about it was because um, the condition was that I would study medicine straight after and that actually um, the med school had kept a place for me in sec for second year meds medicine as soon as I'd finished music. And have, how did they um, then respond to you moving to writing as well as music? Um, I think they were always aware that I wrote fiction and um, they'd always encouraged that but I think maybe they might have preferred if I had written scientific scientific articles rather than fiction. And Mikey what about you like you went off and, and did an email and creative writing um, how did your family react to that? They don't know about it. <laughs> Which is fine, like, it's like, I, want, I don't want to fill their heads with these weird ideas about, you know, oh, art, oh, literature. I want them to think about the sensible things that I've gotten up to, the claims administration. Um, <laughs> one day, though, when they're ready. Rose, your parents have turned up at your book launch and they're super cute and super supportive. How, how have they sort of come along with you on this, on this journey? Um, well, I think, like, having a book is still like a, a big achievement in, across cultures. So they're very stoked about it. Um, but I had this hilarious conversation with them the last time I saw them where they were like, oh, you're not in the arts world. Like, no. Like, they don't, like, under the, like, 
their, in their idea of the world, like literature is not an artistic format. They're like, no, 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 you write essays. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> they don't consider me in the art scene. So I'm like, I was like, oh, all right, mum and dad. Like, yeah, you can think that, yeah. <laughs> Do you think also the fact that you have a, like a day job sort of helps with that acceptance as well? Yeah, I think so. Um, I feel like if I had gone straight into doing art sort of stuff right out of high school rather than doing a sensible engineering degree, it might have been quite a different conversation, yeah. But, I mean, I can sort of um, see how, like, if you come to a different country with completely foreign systems and you want your child to have, like, a secure future that you didn't have yourself, you would push them into something that is obviously going to be successful in an obvious path, whereas, like, if you grow up in New Zealand and you're aware that, you know, you can be successful in a range of other things you can play to your strengths rather than just like picking a path that's well trodden and I just think that's kind of a idea that's like not um that people don't have if they haven't grown up in that country um I think we should jump into a reading um Mikey do you want to kick things off and and introduce um the piece that you uh, are going to read and, and who wrote it and why you picked it um I chose this story uh well this extract from uh the novelist Saibon Ang. Um, it's called. It's from her uh, novel called *The Subversives*. I think it's still a work in progress. Um, Saibon Ang was born in Santa Misa, Manila, in 1976 during the martial law years of Philippine President Marcos. Her grandfather was a Chinese immigrant who arrived alone in Manila as a young boy in the 1920s. And this is the extract: The mayor had a penchant for matches. The whole town knew it, not just because his parents owned the export quality and Pierno water-resistant matches. He had been mayor for seven years, and already there had been four big fires in San Joaquin. The first one struck at dawn on his very first Ash Wednesday in office, a great conflagration that wiped out a settlement on Abilidad Street across the public market. The fire department took an hour and a half to organize themselves and then got stuck in the morning traffic. The Chinese volunteer fire brigade summoned from the next town arrived at 6 o'clock, but by then, all of the 500 houses made of scrap wood had executed their divine calling to become tinder to fire. Nothing remained but the nails that once held them together. Seven people had died. Father Ray Montserrat, parish priest at the Church of Our Lady of Penitence, who was himself collecting ash into a consecrated bowl just the day before, said holy mass while the embers burned. He dipped a trembling thumb into a silver bowl and rubbed the sticky gray substance on the foreheads of survivors, promising the sucker of paradise. The dead, meanwhile, were promised a church burial, courtesy of the mayor's office. At four in the afternoon, on the pretext of moving them to a suitable place for the night, the, servers, the survivors were packed into buses and were delivered to a government lot in Novaliches, where they could have a better life. They brought whatever ragtag belongings they were able to snatch from the flames, along with their eternal souls, school bags, pots and pans, rolled up beneath mismatched shoes. That Friday, dump trucks rolled in to clear the land of all memory of them. By Monday, young palm trees and baby shrubs of red suntan had been planted on the suddenly spacious sidewalk. Together, they promised a breezy promenade. Now that the shanties were gone, the four streets that bordered the public market could be spotted from the hills. The building, constructed before the revolution, had a quiet elegance and dignity that reminded them of San Joaquin's golden days where the Spaniards and the Americans who replaced them took strolls in the square. Some residents talked of bringing back Calisas for tourists and reviving the carnival queens, while the more romantic did away with present realities completely and dreamt of boat rides on the river. 
Six months after that first fire, a Billy Dodd Street was advertised as one of the mayor's most successful beautification projects. There's a string of them on his website now. Magazine editors plied the mayor's personal assistant with gift cards to expensive spas, holidays, resorts, and widening treatments for a slot in the mayor's calendar. Thank you. When you first started writing, what, what did you write and, and what sort of writer did you want to be? Um, I have a very rich inner world. So, uh, you know, just there's always stuff going on up there. And, you know, like uh, my brother and sister, uh, who are both older than me, were very into writing stories. And my older brother in particular was into, you know, like online RPG, like text-based role-playing games if anyone knows about that sort of thing. So he was very into like inventing these like big stories that other people could get involved in. And, you know, I was like, ah, oh, Koya is so cool. I want to be like him. Um, so I would like try and write stories and, you know, try and write like R.L. Stein or Paul Jennings type, type tales. Rosen, what made you choose essays as sort of your first creative pursuit in this, in this area? I was just a dumb STEM major who did not understand that I could do a different format. And I think, um, I think people think poetry is the most accessible writing form, but it is actually the hardest. And I could never write a poem because it's so difficult. And nonfiction is really easy. And that is why I was like, yeah, I have thoughts in my head. I'll put them on the piece of paper and that's how I got to becoming an essayist. You do touch on a lot of topics. Um, you do write a lot about your childhood and Chinese ancestry and your family, but you also sort of veer into writing about sexuality and um, hiking and uh, your work in, in software. How did you sort of come to the topics that you wanted to write about? Was it just everything that was in your head that you just had to get down on a page? Or, or did you sort of feel conscious of what you were selecting to write about? I did consciously choose some things that I felt like weren't the tropes of what Asian writers did. It's hard because it's like, you know, like stereotypes exist for a reason because they do just apply to like a broad sort of swathe of the population. And I was like really aware that, you know, some stereotypes applied to me and some didn't. So I tried to, um, you know, like I was not going to lie about my experience, um, but I did want to then sort of spotlight like things about my life that I'm like, I don't know if people would typically associate Asian women with this. So there was a little bit of a curation in that sense. And Mikey and Rupa, have you ever felt pressured to write about specific topics? It's almost like the stereotypes that uh, Rose has just mentioned. I wish I knew what the stereotypes about Filipinos were in New Zealand so that I could <laughs> write about them and exploit the homophobic them. nurses. <laughs> <laughs> so in a way, not knowing those stereotypes meant that you, you didn't feel you needed to be a certain type of writer or, or fit into a certain type of box. I mean, I definitely felt like... You know, because I did the MA, I remember when I entered that, I was like, oh, there's like a certain type of writing style that I can see coming out of the young New Zealand writers of today, and I need to try and emulate that or try and write something that is relevant to sort of New Zealand's literary canon. So rather than looking specifically at, you know, what a good Filipino representation would be within literature, I was trying to think about 
you know, how do I impress people enough to let me get into this course? Um, which is a really foolish way to go about it. Um, and it took some time to realize that it's just, you just, I should just write from what I want to write about and what's in my head. Um, but I do sometimes like, become, like get overcome with this anxiety about, you know, like how do you write something important? How do you write something that will matter to other people that are like you or struggling or, you know, who have various horrible experiences and, you know, that kind of burden is, I think it's, well, I think it's important. It's, it's not specific to race and I don't, I don't know how I would write something that would be useful to Filipinos everywhere when I'm part of the diaspora who have a set of different issues and I feel like I don't even connect properly to those issues because I didn't do nursing, I didn't do any of the important degrees that a lot of Filipinos are represented in. So I don't feel like I can properly represent their world anyway and I'd rather see one of them do it. Rupa, do you think um, writing fiction sort of helps to sort of put up a, a wall or a, or a mask in a way to sort of protect you from putting a lot of yourself into your writing? I feel like I do put a lot of myself into my writing in that um, I, I really relate to my characters, but um, I do, it is all fiction. Like I, I, um, I think it's really great when people write essays about their lives and their um, ancestors' lives and stuff. I think it's wonderful and I love reading about it, but I, I can't imagine doing that myself. Um, do you actually want to... Uh do a reading from the book for us and uh, explain who you've picked and, and why. So I've picked um, part of a story called Fission by Nicole Tan, who um, is from Malaysia. And they arrived in Auckland in 2003. As a seven or eight-year-old, they would write down in pencil in a palm-sized diary planner the stories that their grandmother told of travelling alone from central Java by boat to Macau cutting her hair short and dressing as a boy and arriving in China alone as a 15-year-old, of having her school bombed during the war, living through the racial riots and ethnic tensions in Indonesia and later Malaysia, stories of the Japanese occupation of Malaya. An office administrator and full-time single parent, Nicole writes fiction, character-driven speculative fiction and the occasional poem. They're interested in what truths science fiction reflects back to us about ourselves. So here is the story. At the station, I see my binary on the other train, arriving in a squall of blinding wind. Me, I'm on the opposite train, the one about to depart, doors already wheezing shut, sealing me in with the rest of the rush hour crowd. For a moment, we're both wonderfully parallel, my binary and I, the compartments of our trains aligned. The phosphorescent oblong of the window frame makes a portrait of my binary's outline, arm raised to hook their waist around one of the suspended handles, limp-fingered, head snug against the raised post of their arm, their entire weight strung up by that wrist, almost exactly how I'm standing right now. We look nothing alike any longer, but my body recognises them. The tingling that starts in my forehead radiates across my eyes, down my neck, torso, the length of my spine, all the way to my groin. 
the train starts to move, throwing my balance, and I'm pressed against the window, hand-printing on the glass, as though I'm trying to reach across the gap between the tracks through the glass and aluminium casings of the compartments that insulate us against each other. I don't have an explanation for what happened. All I know is I've, I'd been feeling off for weeks. I broke up with my girlfriend, Mai, for no reason, and then the next day I ran to her office begging her to have dinner with me. At dinner, I ate an entire plate of boiled squid pieces without offering her any before saying to her face, this is not what I want to say, but honestly, nothing's working at all. That includes us. I went out walking all through the city, searching for nothing, coming home and then going out again, forgetting to eat, then buying food and being sick before ever consuming it. The split happened while I was walking past the train station. It started from the top of my head. My skull chimed again and again with tiny bell hammer notes that rolled up the whites of my eyeballs. Beneath my scalp, my nerves opened fire. The pain dulled as my body released some kind of self-anesthetizing enzyme, turning me numb all over. The nearest toilet was inside the station. I locked myself in the cubicle, even as the center of my body turned spongy. I prodded the flesh on my neck, leaving fingertip-shaped dents in my skin. My scalp began to tear from the top down. Another point of fission began right above my navel. Skin and bone and muscles softened, sludged and breached as my body diverged along the invis invisible axis that determined my bilateral symmetry. My clothes were straining at the seams, so I pulled them off. Then I was halved like an apple, pressing one-handed against the wall for balance. My binary was the half that stepped away. The consciousness that opened in my binary's one staring eye was new, too far away from me to be mine. I looked at Sue. They studied me and returned. One-armed, one-legged, with unfinished bones, half-slurry, garbled blood vessels, plasticine tendons that even then were lengthening, restructuring. My face grew back. So did theirs. We rege regenerated the replacement halves of our separate bodies. She was a perfect copy of me. Thank you. Um, earlier this week, someone shared a, a poem on uh, Twitter from Frank Bidart, um, and these lines, before it happened, it was never going to happen. After it happened, it was always going to happen. What do you think has been the catalyst for this emergence of, of Asian writers that are gaining um, attention and, and perhaps the publication of Claire Dawn? Um, I, in my MA year, like, one, like, really grumpy supervision session with Chris Rice was like, why aren't there more Chinese writers? Um, and she was like, maybe it is just, like, a numbers thing because if you, like, there needs to be some sort of critical mass. Um, and, like, before I did the MA, all I really saw from the Asian community was sort of, like, history stuff around, like, the fruit merchants and the gold miners. And that makes sense because it was kind of like the, the people of that generation were getting to an age where they were like, we need to sort of publish something about this part of our lineage. And then I think, given that the most significant numbers of Asian migration to New Zealand happened in, like, you know, like, the 90s, it sort of makes sense that those people, like, me and 
Mikey, like people of our age and now suddenly there's like a glut of them now. Well, not not really a glut. It's like a, a smattering. <laughs> I mean, I'd never really thought about it like that before. Yeah. And I think there is truth to that as well. Like you sort of need those numbers and you need those people to sort of be in the space where they can sort of take a step back from their lives and be like, oh, maybe I want to do something like that. Yeah, Mikey, do you feel that you have peers in this in this community that are also writing and coming from sort of the same background and experiences? Um, I don't know any other Filipino people writing at the moment uh, in New Zealand. Um, I know, like, I have friends overseas who, like, are interested in writing, but, you know, they don't have the motivation to do it for whatever reason. Uh, so n not really. Uh, Rupa, what about you? Did, you? did you ever feel you were writing in isolation or were, were there other writers... That, that you could look to? Um, I think the other writers in my MA class were very supportive. Um, but apart from that, I do write very much in isolation. Um, a few years ago, there was a bit of a controversy when a white American poet um, got published using a Chinese uh, pen name. Um, there was a, a lot of outrage, um, and he talked about how it was... Uh, beneficial for him because it was more likely the poem would get placed with, with an ethnic-sounding name. Um, do you think it's fashionable to be a writer with an ethnic-sounding name? I'm just going to throw that out as the last question. A little bit. Why do you think that is? They sound good. Um, but, you know, there's just... There's certain trends and there's certain point scoring, at least in optically that people think they can get by being from a different ethnicity, from a different nationality. Um, it's also a way to like sort of distinguish yourself. You know, you're like, oh, I'm exotic and different and you should like l read my work because, you know, you haven't, you haven't seen anything like this yet. It's so different now than 10 years ago. I think there's a section of white people who are like, oh shit, I might be racist. And then their reaction is, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, we publish more like non-white sounding names. Like I do think that there's, I feel like the current conversation about race is really awkward um, and there's no middle ground. And so like people don't know how to approach these things. We don't quite have the language yet and we haven't like got there as, you know, like I've just, just like, I think in New Zealand, I think we're doing a really good job with biculturalism, but it's very like Pākehā and Māori rather than like Tōiwi and Māori. Like there's like little things like that where like, I think white people are like, oh yeah, yeah, okay, we, we, we did bad, we need to do good, but we haven't really quite like worked out how to do good, good. Um, do you want to finish things off with, with your selected reading? Who have you chosen? Um, I'm going to read a section from um, Sarade de Silva. Uh, Sarade is a Sri Lankan Pākehā writer and creative based in Tamaki Makoto. She works in radio, theatre and television and will graduate from the University of Auckland's Master of Creative Writing program in 2021. Sarade wrote this essay for her grandmother, Mitzi Rose Francis de Silva, who passed away 10th of February 2019. When girl Ravi left Gran, boy Ravi and I sat next to Gran's bed on rigid, uncomfortable chairs. I kept putting my hands on her. She was shrinking in front of me. Four months earlier, I'd visited Gran in her rest home. I stole a perfect lily from the garden outside the window. 
was too low to see from her room, so I ripped it out and put it in a vase on her dresser next to the chili plant. I sat on her bed, and she sat with her bird shoulders in a chair and listened carefully while I tried to explain to her what a podcast was and why making one was going to be my job for the next year. Boy Ravi and I looked at each other every time her breathing changed. It was the diabetes that had pushed her over the edge. Something to do with the way it affected her liver. She had this ulcer on her foot, and the previous year it had caused a cardiac event, something bad enough for her to be hospitalised for several days. Her doctor told us plainly that Gran was going to die. Gran listened without surprise and said she didn't want to be resuscitated. I listened too with an empty face, nodded, and made her cucumber sandwiches in the waiting room with a plastic chopping board bought in a pack of three from New World. My cousins, the kids of Boy Ravi, just stared at me, some of my flyaway terror and grief latching onto theirs. For so long in Hamilton, it felt like it was just the two of us. My cousins all lived in Wellington. Mum worked until midnight most nights or was with her new partner. My dad lived in Christchurch. My sister was still years away. For 12 years, I was an only child and my grand's only job was me. She picked me up from school every day. She'd wait in the car park for about half an hour before school ended, doing the crossword with a pencil. On the way home, she would let me eat half a piece of extra chewing gum because if I had a whole piece, I might choke. And on Fridays, I would get $1.50 to either save or spend on ice cream from the dairy. I didn't save it once. Maybe once a month, Gran would make a fish curry, much hotter than the chicken or paripu that we had for dinner most nights. White fish with a gravy, a pale golden colour, served with coconut rice to cool it down. I can remember being eight years old, sitting down with a glass full of milk and shoveling three spoonfuls into my mouth before I had to drink all the milk to ease the burning. Once, before they moved her to the retirement home, she asked me to cook her halloumi. It was one of the rare times she craved anything European. I think she saw them make it on my kitchen rolls. Specifically, she requested beetroot halloumi and a white wine spritzer. I might have been in one of my obsessive clean eating phases because for her spritzer, I bought soda instead of lemonade, like an asshole. She had one sip and handed it back, asking me to serve sugar into it. At the rest home, I would bring her fried noodles, barbecue pork buns, dim sum. I snuck in chilli sauce, even though, though they said she wasn't allowed it, and Portuguese egg tarts that we'd both flake all over ourselves. She got to the point where she could only really eat one or two mouthfuls. The last time I saw her still herself, I told her I was dating a girl. She looked at me, and her mouth formed this perfect O for the longest time, frozen in her surprise. I asked her to say something, and she asked me if I was sure this girl isn't just my friend. <laughs> I said no, I was very sure she isn't just my friend, and that actually Gran would really like her because this girl was so much better than any of the men I had dated. She said she didn't know anyone gay, not true, and that no one she knew anyone was gay, also not true. So she didn't really know how to process it. Of course, I couldn't be mad. And of course, the relationship imploded just before she died, and the grief of that mingled with the grief of her passing, so I couldn't taste either of them separately. In the month after Gran died, I tried to recreate her prawn curry. I couldn't. She was a god in the kitchen. 
but something about the colours of it all was helpful. Thank you, Rose. That unfortunately brings us to the end of this session. Um, thank you so much for joining us uh, tonight and coming to this event. Um, please give a final round of applause for our writers, uh, Rupa Moitra, Mikey Santo Domingo, and Rose Liu, uh, for their uh, thoughts and uh, insights tonight. Thank you.